according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, turning in your Bible to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We had last week off because of the VBS, so uh, we'll take uh, a few minutes at the start of this hour to kind of review where we started and, uh, and take it from there. Matthew 24. The title is Jesus Tells the Future, and that's not my title, but it's the title that comes from the Harmony of the Gospels that we've been adapting. I would much rather prefer calling this the Mount Olivet Discourse. Uh, but uh, what we think of as the Mount Olivet Discourse combines episode 12 with episode 13. And so uh, it's probably best that we keep them uh, as separate events and, and stay consistent with the harmony that we've been using. Matthew 24, 1 says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So they're all impressed with the architecture, and he says it's going to be destroyed. And uh, <laughs> you might uh, imagine the shock on their face when, uh, they, when he uh, throws the, the cold water on their enthusiasm there in uh, the first couple of verses here of Matthew 24. All right, so this is where we're going to be today. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each believer priest the opportunity to quiet your heart, to confess any sin that needs to be dealt with, to humble yourself under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. And Father, we ask for Your hand of blessing upon our study today, that You would open the eyes of our understanding, that You would give us ears to hear. Father, we thank You that the Word of God does not depend upon uh, any earthly uh, ability. Uh, that it doesn't depend upon how smart we are to figure these things out, but it depends upon how faithful You are, Father, and Your Holy Spirit to guide us into all things, even the deep things of God. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again on this day, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Well, as I said, we did have last week off because of the glorious Vacation Bible School that was conducted and just the amazing blessings of that. So um, let's go ahead and just take the outline right back from the beginning again and remind ourselves of what we're dealing with. Point one. This episode combines with the next, what we'll study under point 13 in the harmony. This episode combines with the next for what is commonly called the Mount Olivet Discourse. And the Gospel of Matthew is actually very well known for the dominant discourses, including uh, the Sermon on the Mount, including um, actually more than it's usually given credit for, the famous parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. Um, I thought that Matthew 13 had tremendous uh, impact and is not usually thought of. They like to think of five dominant discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And while I understand what they're doing, I think we can add two more to it and have a total of seven dominant discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. 
Well, from Matthew 24 to 25, these two chapters combined, he speaks uh, this message to his disciples in private on the Mount of Olives on uh, his final departure from Jerusalem before he goes to the cross. And uh, we'll break this down for you here in the subpoints. Uh, during the Passion Week, it was Jesus' practice to teach in the temple each day. In fact, if you turn over to Luke 21, you'll see that this was the common practice for this week. It was his practice to teach in the temple each day, retiring to Mount Olivet each evening. And uh, presumably uh, to Bethany there, the house of Simon the leper, uh, or possibly the house of, uh, of uh, Mary and Martha with Lazarus. They were also Bethany residents as well. Uh, but returning each night to, uh, to sleep and then back to Jerusalem again in the morning. And um, real quickly, I'll just pick this up. Luke 21, verses 37 and 38. During the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. That's just east of Jerusalem across the, uh, the, the Kidron Valley there up to Mount Olivet. Uh, Bethany is on the southeast corner of, uh, of Olivet. And the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. And so this is what we've been studying all the way from Monday, Palm Monday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Tuesday, Wednesday. This was his practice. Now we're at the end of Wednesday. We're at the end of Wednesday and he's given his final public message. The final public message being the seven woes pronounced in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And a very powerful message there in Matthew 23. He's now departing on Wednesday night. He will not come back to the temple Thursday morning. In fact, he does not come back into the city itself on Thursday until it's already mid-afternoon, late afternoon, and he's sending his disciples in for the preparation of the upper room uh, Passover meal, the upper room discourse, what's going to happen there on the evening or afternoon evening of Thursday. And we'll go through all of these details as we approach the Thursday uh, dinner, the Thursday night prayer in Gethsemane, the betrayal and arrest on into the early morning of Friday leading to the uh, crucifixion here Friday morning. So this was his practice. Meals and sleeping were evidently in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. And uh, for details on that, it's Matthew 26 and Mark 14. Likewise, uh, there was Lazarus, Mary, and Martha close by. They were also residents there in Bethany. Uh, but I do believe the home is stated very explicitly that it was the home of, of Lazarus. I'm, I'm sorry, the home of Simon the leper. I'm going to try to steal a clip here if I can. It may not work. <laughs> All right, that's not going to work either. Okay. Meals and sleeping were evidently in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha close by. Normally, prayer would take place in Gethsemane. Uh, the night in which he is arrested is not the first time that he's there. In fact, we, as we read it in John 18, it appears that he met there often with his disciples, that it was customary for him to stop there uh, for prayer. And so it was a place very well known to Judas Iscariot. It was well known to him, and he was able to... Uh, to please the Pharisees and the, uh, the chief priests, those that were trying to arrange for Jesus' arrest. They were, they were very cautious. They didn't want to do it in broad daylight. They didn't want to do it with crowds around. They were afraid of the, of the backlash, the response that they may get from the people if they were to do so in public view. And so you might imagine their delight when Judas offers to betray them and he knows, he knows a place and a time where it can be done 
you know, after dark. It can be done without too many eyes seeing what's going on. Now, point two then. As they depart from the temple, the disciples express how awesome it appears to them. When you read the parallel records, uh, we've only read Matthew 24, 1 today, but a couple weeks back we read the parallel text in Mark 13, 1 and Luke 21, 5. I think the Mark record may have been the one that was most vivid related to how impressed they were with uh, the beauty of what, uh, what Herod was doing here in, in restoring this temple. He was uh, going out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And uh, it just, it's pretty vivid in how impressed they are with the, the beauty of, uh, of the construction. And, of course, Jesus just shoots it down. He says, uh, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So this prompts Jesus to prophesy his complete destruction down to the very last stone. The very last stone. And that sparks a lot of discussion because today Jewish people will stand there what they call the, the Western Wall. They call it the Wailing Wall. And it really is a debated discussion as to whether or not uh, does that count. I mean, there, there still are stones on top of one another in that Western Wall. And so um, there's, there's a legitimate discussion as to whether, well, does this mean that, that Jesus' prophecy didn't come true? Uh, does this mean that uh, that well you know we can we can be a little fuzzy on the the details as long as it basically comes true we're okay no let's not be sloppy about handling our text he's very precise when he says not only is this going to be destroyed but it is going to be so destroyed that not one stone will be left on top of another all right so it it launches into the discussion then as to whether or not this is actually going to be fulfilled in 70 AD when the, when Titus and the, and the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, or if in fact this is waiting for a future tribulational destruction at the hands of Antichrist, at the hands of, of uh, the destruction that's going to happen there coinciding with Second Advent. So that's something that we will explore in a, uh, in a greater development here in just a moment, because I, I want to try to broaden our thinking that we don't just fall into a trap of... Uh, knowing what we know without actually reading what the text says. All right? So what's going to happen then? We're going to have private questionings. And we're told in Mark that it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew that take the lead, that they lead the private questioning. But all the disciples are present. And they're going to lead this questioning. When will these things take place? And uh, we've got to be cautious with, with the questions they ask and the answers that are given because the questions may be improper the questions may be wrong just based on assumptions on their part and that's what we have to uh, identify as well so we use mark 13 3 as our base we relate it to luke 21 7 and especially to matthew 24 3 to understand the questions all right now i think did we get this far we did get this far all right i want to make sure we're not going too fast in our review and fail to catch the details that we need to catch um, keep in mind, this is a private message to the disciples. His final public message was earlier in the day when he pronounced seven woes, when he pronounced that your house is being left to you desolate, when he tells Jerusalem that they will not see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that he cannot come in second advent until there is a national repentance on the part of Israel. Israel as a nation must accept their king. And it's going to take tribulation to bring that about. So this is not a warning. 
When he says the, the temple is going to be destroyed, he's not warning them, but he is privately warning his disciples. And there will be very um, precise warnings that are given about when to flee and don't look back and don't go get a cloak and I hope you're not pregnant and, <laughs> and things like that, saying uh, you don't want anything to slow you down when it comes time to, to run, you understand. But that's to his disciples. It is not to Jerusalem at large. And it's certainly not to uh, the Jews in rebellion that are rejecting their king and crucifying their king. So it is not the first century rejectors of Christ that are warned. The first century rejectors of Christ are not warned. But it will be the tribulational disciples of Christ that are going to be paying close attention. I expect this discourse will be center stage on the part of the 144,000 evangelists, on the part of all believers in the remnant in the Great Tribulation, they're going to be paying attention to, uh, to this particular message. Now, under point B, we must take the time to carefully sort out the questions the disciples are asking and then the answers the Lord is giving. Because they're going to ask a variety of questions. In fact, I think they, they ask a total of three questions in this. And uh, when you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when you compare the, the synoptic accounts, you get, the, I think, the best understanding of the three questions they ask. And then when the Lord gives His answers, we need to, we need to understand that He answers in reverse order. And He answers uh, the middle question only in Luke, but not in Matthew and Mark. All right? You'll see that here in a moment. But first of all, they want to know time. They're really wrapped up in time, the time inquiries. They want to know when. He says the temple is going to be destroyed, and so they want to know when. When will these things be? And the, these things are the things that he's speaking of, the destruction of the Jerusalem and additional items related to the destruction of Jerusalem, like the house being left to you desolate and no one or not returning until uh, Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and so forth. The time inquiries of when. All right. When will these things be? And uh, when questions and what will be the sign of your coming? There's the second aspect of their question. The sign inquiries focus in on what? So they ask when and what? When and what? When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? Now. As we focus on this, we understand that we're dealing with Israel. We're not dealing with the church. The minute we start seeing signs, we know for a fact we're not talking to the church. The church doesn't have signs. In fact, signs are not even related to Gentiles necessarily. Signs are the feature of Israel and their covenant relationship with the Lord. So these signs of His coming and the signs of His reign and the signs of His establishing the kingdom, these are all Jewish prophecies related to Jewish covenants and Jewish promises. But we also want to understand here that the sign questions, the what questions, are actually flawed. The sign inquiries, and we gave this to you, and this is actually where we ran out of time because I want to really bring this point home. And we will do so as well in um, points four and five and the points that follow here. These questions are hampered. They're hampered by finite and flawed understanding. See, when they're asking about this temple being destroyed, they're only viewing it as a single event. They're not understanding that there are actually 
two upcoming temple destructions. That this one is going to be destroyed in their generation and then another temple is going to be destroyed eschatologically. It's going to be destroyed in the Great Tribulation. In fact, they will rebuild this temple in unbelief and they will rebuild this temple uh, under permission from Antichrist. Isn't he nice? All right. He gives them the permission and they rebuild this temple and they offer their sacrifices and things seem great until he puts a stop to it and seats himself there. All right. Demands his, his, his own worship. Portrays himself as being God. So their sign inquiries, their what questions, are actually hampered by finite and flawed understanding that only envisions a single temple destruction. A single temple destruction. And you'll note when uh, in Matthew 24 and verse 3, uh, here's their question. What will these, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Quite clearly, when the temple is destroyed, that has to spark his coming. <laughs> and when he comes, that has to be the end of the age. And so they're, they're just viewing this as one single event. See? And uh, it's just a flawed string of questions. He's not going to come with response. He's not going to look down and see the temples destroyed and say, oh my, I better go back and fix everything. He's going to return when they are humbled. He's going to return when they, they accept him in faith. The destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple, uh, he's not shocked by that into action. He actually permits that to happen. It's a part of his discipline. It's a part of his wrath. Now, Regardless of their confusion and how they ask the questions, his answers are what we want to pay attention to, okay? Because maybe they're asking the wrong questions. And maybe they're asking the questions out of order. His answers are what we lock in on. Because his answers are what are being um, inspired by God the Holy Spirit in the text of Scripture here. His questions are what are being are, are absolute, perfect, and true under the divine utterance of, of a prophetic revelation. So the Lord's answers, as recorded in the synoptic narratives, were more specific than the disciples realized. And so when the Lord uh, when you sort his answers out, you're going to get a fuller and clearer understanding of Jerusalem eschatology. And you're going to understand that he answers them in a different order than the order they asked. And in fact, the specific uh, message and prophecy related to the Roman destruction in 70 A.D., uh, he gives that in, in the Luke narrative and he basically ignores it. In Matthew and Mark, didn't even address it at all. In Matthew and Mark. But he does address it in Luke. All right. Now, am I blaming the disciples <laughs> for asking dumb questions? No, not at all. We must forgive the disciples their ignorance as no prophet of Israel prior to Jesus ever distinguished the two advents of Messiah with any clarity. We have to cut them some slack, as it were. <laughs> all right. First Peter 1, verses 10 and 12. The prophets of old made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he taught the... Uh, well, I'm going to misquote it if I'm not careful. The prophets of old made careful searches and inquiries. So they weren't sloppy. And they had full access to heaven. They had full access to inquire of the Lord, to get answers to their inquiries. But they could not get answers to this because the Father withheld it under the, the mystery principle. 
As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. All right? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In other words, they weren't given precise answers. They were told that a future people would be given that answer at a future time that would be made clear they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you what never announced to them but now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven in other words apostles church age believers receiving this revelation apostles and prophets in the first century of the church things into which angels long to look not only were the old testament prophets kept in the dark the angels were kept in the dark this whole mystery age was kept in the dark the the whole concept that there would be two advents separated by two thousand years none of that was clear if all you have is an old testament you're looking at messianic prophecies quite often first advent and second advent are all lumped together in the same prophetic message all right and i want to show you that I want to show you that all messianic prophecies, therefore, can be categorized as first and or second advent prophecies. So if 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 you're doing a study of Old Testament messianic prophecies, you've got to put them, you've got to just take the prophecy, put some columns down and then check them off. Is this first advent is the second advent? All right. Virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Is that first advent or second advent? First advent. All right. Uh, your king will come uh, humbly riding on a colt. First advent, right. Um, uh, He descends with the angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. Second advent, there you go. Okay, you guys are good at this. Um, But the bulk of, and and see, this is because, as church-age saints, we are in between the two advents, and we have the advantage of having a New Testament revelation to reinforce the things that are still future, okay, The book of Revelation, the Old Testament prophets didn't have the capstone there that the Apostle John wrote in in our book of Revelation. All right. So, um, you know, we we have such an advantage to bring Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, uh, to put all of these together. The book of Revelation is what does that for us. All right. But some of them are blended. So here's here's the extra passage I want to give you today. And it's Isaiah 61. You can join me there in Isaiah 61. And then uh, we'll relate it over to Luke 4. And uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. In Isaiah 61. We want to focus specifically on verse 1 and then verse 2 and 3. And the actual Advent break comes in the middle of verse 2. All right, in the ad, in what I call the prophetic shift. That's my term. I trademarked it. And, and if you read anybody that writes it, uh, then let me know. Um, they they got to pay me some royalties. Uh, prophetic shift here. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Is this Isaiah speaking of himself? No, well, he's speaking prophetically in the place of Jesus Christ in his first advent. 
And Jesus even will cite this when he tries to encourage John the Baptist and other things. Anyway, um, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And that's where the break comes. Now, you wouldn't know it if all you're doing is reading Isaiah. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. And, and so it goes on. Okay, I don't want to take you down through the rest of Isaiah 61, but that shifts from first advent into second advent. And it shifts in the middle of verse 2. So you have verse 1 and verse 2a. But when you get to verse 2b and verse 2c and then the verse 3 and following, that's all second advent. So you have a verse and a third of verse 2. Okay? And you see this when you read in Luke 4. Turn over there to Luke 4. And you'll see as the Lord is reading this in, in verse uh, 16 and following. Look, 4.16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, unrolled the scroll, and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And look what he's doing. He's going to read what we just read. And he reads Isaiah 61.1, and he reads a third of Isaiah 61.2. And there is no reason in Isaiah alone to stop there. But he does stop there. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I imagine they were fixed on him. He stopped in the middle of a verse. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you know that he had to stop there to give that utterance because had he read the rest of verse 2, he would be looking forward into second advent fulfillment and, and uh, the rest of that is waiting for the coming kingdom. So this is, this is huge. This, this, is, this is a powerful lesson for us. It teaches us about hermeneutics. It teaches us about how to handle Old Testament quotations in the New Testament. All right. teaches us that we've got to be literal in our, in our hermeneutic. And then we have to be careful to present ourselves before God, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He just rightly divided right there in the middle of verse 2 of Isaiah 61. And so as we classify our messianic prophecies, we want to say, okay, is this first advent, is the second advent, or is this both? Because many of them, like Isaiah 61, are a combined first and second advent prophecy that are just looking forward to the coming Christ. And we've got to... We've got to uh, understand that. Now, how about a a son will be born to us? A a uh, I'm sorry, a child will be born to us. A son will be given. Is that first advent or second advent? You see, I'm, I'm tricking you because when you read the rest of the verse, what does it say? And the government will rest on his shoulders. There will be no end to the increase of his right. So you understand. That's another one of those blended first and second advent prophecies. So. We can uh, forgive the apostles for being um, a little confused in the 
questions they ask, the fact that they're out of order, the fact that the Lord answers them out of order is what we want to focus on for our significant application. All right, point five then. Anytime you read a Jerusalem and temple destruction prophecy, Jerusalem and temple destruction prophecies require careful searches and inquiries. <laughs> All right? Just stop and ask yourself. Jerusalem and temple destruction prophecies require careful searches and inquiries, similar to dispersion and regathering prophecies. Dispersion and regathering prophecies. These are the kind of messages that we have to stop and say, wait a minute. Let's be careful with this. Jerusalem and temple destruction prophecies require caution in a similar way that dispersion and regathering prophecies do. Because we have to ask ourselves, are we talking about, in terms of the captivity and regathering, are we talking about the Babylonian captivity? Right? I mean, if a prophet says, the temple is going to be destroyed and you're going to be taken away into captivity, but God will bring you back. Could he be talking about Babylon and that they're going away into captivity and they're going to be coming back after 70 years? Could be. But could they also be talking about the destruction in 70 A.D. and the scattering on a global basis and being regathered from the four corners of the earth by the angels? That could be a second advent fulfillment, couldn't it? Or both. Okay, there could be prophecies that are looking forward to the Babylonian captivity, but still have foreshadowings of the the final one of Second Advent. So we've got to be cautious with that. Same thing. Okay, the temple is going to be destroyed. I get that. But are we looking at the Babylonian destruction? Are we looking at the Roman destruction in 70 AD? Are we looking at the Antichrist destruction and the tribulational destruction? What are we looking at as we're looking forward? Okay. Requires, uh, requires caution. Jerusalem and temp point six now. Jerusalem and temple destruction prophecies look forward from the perspective of time of the time they were uttered. They look forward from the perspective of the time they were uttered and may not distinguish with precision which actual destruction is in view. And that's why when you have legitimate disagreement among conservative scholars, among dispensational uh, uh, evangelical pastors, I think we need to have a grace, relaxed attitude to say, you know what, there is a there is a um, consideration that has to be legitimately looked at. And I'll spell this out for you here in the sub points. Looking forward from the perspective of time. You ever read Clarence Larkin? Have you, are you familiar with his book of charts and diagrams? And the, it's called the, the Greatest Book of Dispensational Truth in the World. I love that book. Beyond the utterly humble title that he gave to it. It's true. It is at the time it was written. The Greatest Book of Dispensational Truth in the World. There's a chart in there called Mountain Peaks of Prophecy. If you haven't seen it, go back and look for it. Mountain Peaks of Prophecy. And this chart draws in a picture what I've been trying to say for the last 15 minutes, okay? This chart says that a prophet looking forward is going to have a point of view that will see prophecy like mountain peaks. 
And you might see First Advent, you might see Second Advent, but there's going to be a valley in between those two mountain peaks. And, and the prophets just couldn't see those valleys. That's part of how mystery kept it hidden, you understand. So, point six, Jerusalem and temple destruction prophecies look forward from the perspective of the time they were uttered and may not distinguish with precision which actual destruction is in view. It's not fair for us, since we live in that valley in between first advent and second advent, it's not fair for us to expect that Moses could have had the same perspective we have. It's ridiculous. So, for example, Moses, Isaiah, and Jeremiah prophecies. If they're going to talk about a captivity of the people, if they're going to talk about, uh, you know, a destruction, what might they be talking about? Well, they could be looking forward to Babylon in 586 B.C. They could be looking forward to the Roman destruction. Which one are they looking forward to? Okay, that's why you've got to be cautious with these prophecies as you're handling them. Because from the point of time in which they are giving their messages, both of those events are still future. Now, the Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Jesus prophecies. Remember, Jesus is an Old Testament prophet. Okay. Just because his story is recorded in, in Greek manuscripts contained in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Nevertheless, Jesus is a prophet of Israel. And so his message, we, gotta, we, gotta, we, we do very well if we understand the Olivet Discourse in a correlation to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the other Old Testament prophets of Israel. Okay? So Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Jesus' prophecies, they antedate the Babylonian destruction. So therefore, what do they have to be looking forward to? They must be looking forward to Roman destruction. Okay? They cannot be prophesying the Babylonian captivity because they're after the Babylonian captivity. This is where I think... um, too many people are ignoring Zechariah. Too many people are ignoring the, the uh, Ezekiel. They're ignoring the, the captivity and post-captivity prophets of the Old Testament. And they see a passage that talks about a regathering and they think, oh, well, that's, that's referring to Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah bringing them back from Babylon. Well, it can't be if it's Zechariah. <laughs> it can't be if it's Jesus. Okay? I mean, just a basic historical framework would tell you that. And all of that, but see, here's the thing, is that I, I think at its core, if you ever read liberal theology, they're not, they're not honest. They're not honest scholars. They don't, they're not objectively examining the truth. They've got a theology to defend, and so they, they write on that basis. And they'll look you square in the eye and tell you that, oh, the abomination of desolation was Antiochus Epiphanes in the 3rd century B.C., blah, blah, blah. And so look them right back in the eye and say, Jesus said it was still future in his day, first century A.D. Jesus said the abomination of desolation hadn't happened yet. So was, was he, was Jesus stupid? 
did Jesus not go to your liberal school and, you know, did he not figure out because of higher criticism that that was just Antiochus Epiphanes in the Maccabean era? No, I, I think I think your theology's got issues and I'm going to just trust what Jesus had to say about it. Jesus said that the... Um, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet was still future from the point of time he was prophesying. Uh, that's 33 AD. So, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Jesus' prophecies, they antedate the Babylonian destruction and therefore they must pertain to the Roman destruction, but <laughs> which Roman destruction? Alright. Which Roman destruction? Point C. Jerusalem destruction prophecies pertaining to the Roman destruction may reference either the 70 A.D. Roman destruction or the eschatological Roman destruction. The destruction that's still pending at Second Advent. The destruction that's still pending at Armageddon. Or both. Alright? So I put the and or in there. And so this is where studies of the Mount Olivet Discourse must be careful we've got to be careful and so many of the liberals just go bonkers because they see a little phrase in there about this generation and say see that's 70 AD wait a minute let's be careful how is this generation used in the immediate context of chapter 23 and how is this generation used in the immediate context of Matthew 24 and 25 and let's be clear one of these pertains to the First century A.D., one of them pertains to the end times. So, when Jesus says not one stone will be left, was he talking about 70 A.D.? Was he talking about tribulation? And I think it's legitimate to explore and discuss and debate and and for uh, pastors to... to uh, present the, the case in both ways and, and decide which one is the stronger case. And is there, in fact, a case that may have strong evidence, but it does also, in addition to having fairly strong evidence, actually has a uh, defeater? Does it have a veto? Does it have, is, there a, is there a point of evidence that cannot be surmounted? In which case, then, regardless of whether it has other good things to say for it, it, uh, it can't be accepted because of this defeater. Okay? And that's how you approach, that's really how you approach any prophecy. So, we have something greater than, uh, or not greater, well, later than what Jesus had to say in 33 AD. You've got the Apostle John. The Apostle John's prophecies, point D. The Apostle John's prophecies antedate the 70 A.D. Roman destruction. The only people anymore on planet Earth that believe that Revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. are the liberals who have to believe that because it's the only way they can make their theology work. But all of the evidence, internal, external, every possible the, the uh, witness of the church fathers, all of the evidence tells us that John was exiled to the island of Patmos during the reign of Domitian. This, uh, the dating of Revelation is 96 to 100 A.D. 
you know, more than 20 years, nearly 30 years after the, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And so he cannot be speaking of the 70 AD destruction when he's speaking prophetically. He must be speaking of the eschatological Roman destruction. This is why a tribulation and second advent studies must reject preterism. If you're not familiar with preterism, just thank the Lord you're not familiar with preterism. Preterism is the view that says that uh, it's all over, basically. Revelation was done in the first century, and uh, there's no more prophecy looking forward. Okay, So it's a tragic view. They'll tell you that Nero was the Antichrist. They'll tell you that uh, you know the, the tribulation was very symbolic, you know, and, and, and you, it's, it's, it's amazing if you ever take the time to talk to these folks and you ask them, well, what about the everlasting righteousness that's supposed to... Well, they'll say, oh, it's here. Really? You know? Well, what about Christ in His coming, in His reign? And they'll say, oh, he, he, that happened. He's here. But they say, but it's all figurative. See, He comes... He's, Jesus is here in us. He's here in the church. And his, the kingdom is, you know, the church. And of course, if you're a Roman Catholic, well, then... You can add that detail also. It's the, it's the Roman Catholic Church. And we are the kingdom of heaven and, and so forth. And you say, well, what about the binding of Satan in the abyss for the thousand years? Oh, yeah, that happened. Okay. So you realize when you start having these discussions that you have left literal hermeneutic. <laughs> okay. And you're living in a literal world and they're living in an allegorical world, which is all just kind of figurative symbols and, you know, it's not literal. It's not reality. So, um, understand that. And when you work your way through this exercise, when you work your way through this exercise, it, it helps you to figure, okay, when, where was Moses placed when he gave his pro- uh, prophecies? When was Jeremiah placed when he gave his prophecies? Zechariah is huge because he's post-captivity. He's post-Babylonian captivity. All right, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, all after the captivity. And so they're looking forward. They can't be looking forward to the Babylonian captivity. They're after the Babylonian captivity. They're already in the Persian era by the time they're prophesying. And then Jesus in the Roman era. Where was he in history as he was prophesying? Okay. And then the Apostle John. I love the way that, that um, you know, we had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We had three Gospels already. Why did we need a fourth Gospel? Why did, uh, this is just brilliant on God's part, to reserve the completion of the canon, to add a fourth gospel and to give the apocalypse, to give revelation after the national destruction of Israel, all right, so that it cannot be confused, so that it's completely looking forward. And it's really not until the 19th century insanity of the, of the, 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 the German liberals there that, that anyone even doubted it, as it were. All right. Now, that point seven then. The Gospel of Matthew supplies the fullest narration of the disciples' questions. The Gospel of Matthew. So let's stay in Matthew 24 for the rest of our hour. Because the questions are limited in Mark and Luke. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? But in Matthew, that two-part question gets expanded into three parts. When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign 
of the end of the age? A three-part question phrased in Matthew 24, 3. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's the three-part question. And Matthew gives us the fullest narrative of their questions. So question number one, sub-point A. When will these things happen? The answer to this comes in the Gospel of Luke. Luke records Jesus' answer to this question in Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. But Matthew and Mark omit it. Matthew and Mark omit it. These things being defined as the destruction of the temple and the uh, house being left to you desolate. And uh, from the now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That there is a much more, there's a larger scope of details when they say these things these things as plural has to deal with more than just simply um, the temple being destroyed and you get the other uh, context for the these things when you look at the end of chapter 23 and you see uh, your house is being left to you desolate and you will not see me until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord all right. That's another place where they get sloppy. And I think I might have mentioned that. Um, that that expression in 2339, did I mention that already? Uh, you will not say me, see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they say, well, there you go. Well, that was that was from Psalm 118. And, and they said that on, on Palm Sunday, which I like to call Palm Monday, right? Well, the problem is, is he's telling them this on Wednesday. <laughs> okay, so when he says from now on, he can't say, by the way, what those kids were doing two days ago. That doesn't count. Because those were simply children and the religious leaders weren't on board with that. In fact, the religious leaders were trying to shut those kids up. The religious leaders are not shouting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're plotting his death. And, and, and you would think that it would just be basic chronology. Just, just put the sequence together. And when he says from now on, he's looking forward. And, a, and an event that happened two days in the past can't be the fulfillment of what he's saying here looking forward. That ought to be just basic. All right. When will these things happen? Luke records Jesus' answer to this question. Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. But Matthew and Mark omit it. Secondly, point B. What will be the sign of your coming? Jesus does answer this question, but he answers it last. Jesus answers this question last after he answers the last question first. What will be the sign of your coming? Jesus answers this question last after he answers the last question first. And you will find the details on this answer in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Mark 13, verses 24 through 27. And Luke 21, 25 through 28. All three Gospels give the answer to this question. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Um, you'll note... Immediately after the tribulation of those days. 
hmm, looks to me like it's going to be post-tribulational. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just reading. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from sky, the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Well, that seems pretty precise. And in fact, that seems pretty scary. <laughs> and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All right. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. All right. So what is the sign? It doesn't say it's a star. I think it's a star. It appears to me like it would be a star or a star-like light of some sort. But so that the world doesn't miss what this sign is, God goes ahead and immediately darkens the sun, the moon, and all the uh, other stars. <laughs> it's kind of like the screen's kind of full right now, so he blanks it out and says, all right, now one single light appears. And since it was a star at first advent that led the Magi to Bethlehem, I think it's likely they're going to be a star again. But whatever it is, with a blank tapestry, <laughs> there is nobody going out at night looking up that's not going to have their full attention. All right? And I believe uh, it doesn't just show up the night before and then boom, he's there in the morning. I think it shows up and it gets closer and closer and closer and it grows larger and larger and larger and these kings of the earth are getting scared and scared and they're going to gather all the armies together in Armageddon for their final defense of planet earth. And they're going to do everything they can. What's that? They're going to stop Jesus Christ from returning. <laughs> all right. Or well, that's what they think. That's their purpose for gathering the armies of the, of the world together, demoniac armies of the world together at Armageddon. All right. So then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. By the way, this is why, again, Second Advent cannot be rapture. The rapture doesn't have any signs like this. <laughs> right? The rapture is just going to happen. Boom. We're gone. The Lord descends with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. We're out of here. All right. How do I undo that? Let's see. There we go. So the first question, when will these things happen? Recorded in the Gospel of Luke, not uh, recorded by Matthew or Mark. What will be the sign of your coming? Jesus answers this question last after he answers the last question first. Their last question is, see, what will be the sign of the end of the age? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, are these, are they talking about the church age? <laughs> they don't know anything about the church age. No, they are Jewish disciples. The age of what they're living in, the age of what they're thinking in, the context that their, their whole question is wrapped around in is the Jewish age. All right. What will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, Jesus answers this question first. And I find it interesting because he answers by describing what is not yet the end. And then he describes the sign of the end. Okay. Jesus answers this question first, and he does so in two parts. 
He answers this question first by describing what is not yet the end. And, and every gospel, by the way, uses similar language on this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He answers the question first by describing what is not yet the end, and then by describing the sign of the end. There's such precision with this. All right? And so in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14, he describes what is not yet the end. And then he describes the sign of the end, starting in verse 15, taking you down through verse 28. So Jesus answers this question first by describing what is not yet the end. And he does that in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14. Mark 13, verses 5 through 13. Luke 21, verses 8 through 19. And in those verses, Jesus is describing some horrible things, but they're not yet the end. It's merely the false labor. It's merely the beginning of birth pangs. And then he describes the sign, one sign, of the end. In Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28. Mark 13, verses 14 through 23. And by the way, Luke does not record this last aspect. Luke does not record it. Because Luke, rather, is going to record the answer to question number one. So I want to make sure I've got this all written on the slide. I want to make sure you've got this written down on the slide this way. Okay, as A, B, and C, question one, question two, question three, and you can see that in these questions, um, do I have my, I thought I had my underliner here, maybe I don't. Okay, I don't have it. I was going to get my pen out and start drawing. All right. The, um, question number one, question number two, question number three. What I wanted to underline was here, and I don't have my underliner available unless I have it. Oh, here, I can do this. Pen, here we go. So, in Matthew, he ignores question number one. He then answers question number two here in Mark 24, 15 through 28. And then he answers this question next in Matthew 24, 29 through 31. You see the order of the verses there? So they ask three questions. One, two, three. He ignores one. He actually answers three first. And then he answers, goes back and answers question number two. You see that? And he actually answers question number three in two parts. Verses 4 through 14, followed by, can you see the red? Not very well. Um, let's try yellow. All right, so same thing in Mark, by the way. In Mark, he, d he omits the very first question, doesn't answer it at all. He, uh, he does answer question number three. In verses 5 through 13, and then in verses 14 through 23, he completes that. And then he goes back to answer question number two, finally, in verses 24 through 27. 
So you can see if you're just looking at the verse order that C gets handled before B gets handled, right? That's all I'm trying to say. Same thing happens in Matthew. Same thing happens in Mark. In Luke, in Luke, he answers the third question, but he really only answers the first half of the question by saying what is not the sign of the end. And then um, he answer, He comes back here to answer question one. And then he wraps up by, by uh, returning there to question number two. Okay? And putting the answers together by a synthesis of all three gospel records gives you the clearest eschatology, Jerusalem eschatology you could hope for. The clearest Jerusalem eschatology could hope for. So now, what is the sign of uh, the end of the age? Well, uh, when you look at 4 through 14, you find out what it's not. All right, in 4 through 14, uh, you see that there will be many false Christs. They will come and mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Okay, you haven't seen the sign yet. And then he continues to explain that it's not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom in various places. There will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Because again, to restate what it says in verse 6, this is not yet the end. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. And they will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. But that is not yet the end. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. But this is not yet the end. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But that's not yet the end. When are we going to finally see this end? Okay. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Okay, we haven't reached that end yet. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. And, and by the way, this is not a, a defense of Arminian theology. This is, uh, this is a, uh, an exhortation to tribulational martyrs to hang in there, to endure, to stay faithful. Because the end is coming. You haven't seen the end yet. You haven't even seen the sign of the end yet. So keep enduring. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. All right. And what I find interesting, and I'm already at 11 o'clock, so we're going to have to pick this up here next week. But what I find interesting is that <clears throat> Wycliffe Bible translators, and there are mission agencies today that are under the belief that they can fulfill this verse. That are under the belief that they can translate the scriptures into every spoken language and reach every continent, reach every people group, reach every... And, and, and we can. We have transportation and communication and technology to transmit a gospel message globally. There are still some remote regions that require a bit of hiking. <laughs> okay, There aren't roads that go there, but you can get there. There are still spoken languages that are not yet in Bible translations, whether or not those spoken languages will last another 20 years is debatable. <coughs> but 
I, I, I firmly believe that the uh, motivation actually has a flaw in the sense that to try to fulfill that verse today misses the point. That that verse will actually be the responsibility of the 144,000 of the other believers, tribulational martyrs and believers, um, to fulfill that. Okay? Not, you know, I'm not against efforts of that nature. I think it's a great thing. But it's not a fulfillment of that verse. Okay? Then the end will come. All right, now I'm ready. Tell me what what this end is going to be. And here's the sign. They ask, what is the sign of the end? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, that's the sign. That's the sign of the end of the age. And everything prior to that was merely birth pangs. These things are not yet the end. Okay. Father, thank you for your truth. We've run out of time. That's our limitation, not yours, Father. We just thank you that on this day, you've given us this occasion. And uh, in your grace, if you so delay, we'll come back again. We'll have another occasion. And uh, each time we come together, Father, it's, it's a little here, it's a little there. Line upon line, precept upon precept. We just want to grow and put things together to increase in our understanding. But with our understanding, Father... Uh, Father, with our knowledge, we want to increase in knowledge, but we want to increase in love. And Father, I pray that uh, that you would open our eyes to to see these dark days in which we live, to understand our place, to understand what our responsibilities are. And Father, I just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.